Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Liam Maitland, KCBS foodie chap at Matera Winery. We're up here in glorious Napa, California. Uh, with me, winemaker Bruce Regalia. Thank you. How are you, Bruce? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, I'll be even better, though, when you tell me first, what are we drinking? Uh, let's begin with my favorite sound in the world, which is the sound of the poor. Here we go. Ah, one for me. Look at that. You know how I made mine bigger. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to comment on that. Nose in. Here we go. Mm. So rude. I didn't even say salute before we started there. Salute, Bruce. Here we go. Mm. Mm. Wow. Floral, feminine, delicate. I could say so many more things. Tell me about it. This is the Vonier. So this ranch has beautiful Vonier. Oak Knoll is a great place to grow white varieties. And uh, we have Sauvignon Blanc, Vonier, and Chardonnay here. Um, Vonier is one of the wines that people are surprised to taste, you know, because a lot of people, first of all, are afraid to say it. <laughs> Second of all, there aren't that many around. Um, so Vignet. Vignet. And, oh. uh, and people will say Viognier, you know, I mean, so they're afraid to even... Viognier. They're afraid, they're afraid to say it. But uh, this ranch, uh, these soils lend themselves well to white varieties um, where we have them planted. And uh, Vignet is interesting because it always has that kind of stone fruit, mineral, yeah. whetstone character to it sure. that is really nice. And some people put their Vignet through ML, but I like to keep it crisp and acidic and yeah. make it a food wine so it has no ML. Um, well, pretty easy to our winemaking is pretty non-interventional uh, we um, whole cluster press it cold settle it and then we put it in twice used chardonnay barrels and so it doesn't really get an oak influence but it lets it sit on the leaves and get a creamy middle to it sure. and um, stir it every couple of weeks and we bottle it early we bottle it with our sauvignon blanc in the end of february it's that creamy middle i love uh as we know it's all about the it's also about the weather uh not everything does well here uh i mean we are to most people when in napa cab country but not necessarily cabernet country right here right and uh, you know it's funny because like you said people think of cabernet when they think of napa but um um the reds that do well in this part of Oak Knoll, uh, especially are uh, Merlot, and we're a big Merlot house. So we have lots of different selections of Merlot, different rootstock combinations, and uh, several blocks of Merlot to go along with our whites. And the other thing that surprised me about this area is we have um, Malbec and Petit Verdot, and um, the Malbec from this ranch is phenomenal. Really makes nice wine. We're going to Go way back. We're going to come back to the story of Matera in just a moment. Uh, you have some Italian blood in your family. Do you have winemaking blood in your family? Mm, wine drinking blood. I don't know. You know, I mean. <laughs> Cheers to that. Cheers to that, my friend. Boom. There we go. Well, you know what I think is interesting is that, like, all Italians 
think they know how to make wine, you know. So my grandfather came to San Francisco in the early 1900s, and he had a store in North Beach. And those guys all made wine. I mean, they made their house wine to drink. And, I mean, people wouldn't even really think about buying wine. You know, they would go to the store. But, like, in his store, he had barrels with spigots on there. So you could go fill a jug and get house wine. But all those guys made wine. And, you know, who knows what it was like. But, you know. (laughs) Who's judging? Can't can't judge now. It had alcohol in it. That's enough. Uh, You went to college. Uh, not necessarily on a path or a road that was going to lead you to winemaking. Uh, you went to college for? Uh, I studied uh, plant and soil science and botany. So that has helped you though, right? Oh, it has. My first jobs were managing vineyards. So I was, you know, at that time Davis didn't teach. They taught viticulture and they taught enology. There were two separate things, but they never crossed the two till probably the last 15 years, 20 years. And Why so? They thought that they were separate sciences, you know, and the thing that people became aware of is that you can't make good wine without good grapes. And so the more you know from the ground up, from the vineyard, before you get into the winery, you know, and vineyard guys will tell you the wine is made in the vineyard and there's some truth to that, but I'd never admit to that. (laughs) But you have to have a good product to make a good product. You should mention we are recording this, by the way, Bruce. Uh, uh, (laughs) It's edited though, right? (laughs) Oh, no, no editing, my friend. So at what point did you get serious about the winemaking part? What was the light bulb moment for you? What was the the switch on for you? Mm. I always like to ferment things. I, I brew at home, yeah. and um, I have a small distillation apparatus, which, you know, <laughs> it's fun to play with, and I like to cook. Yeah. And winemaking's a lot like cooking. I always sure. tell everybody, it's, you know, if you can cook, you can make wine, and you don't need a degree to make wine, and you don't need some sophisticated education. You need to be able to pay attention for long enough. Yeah. So when did you start paying attention, and what were you paying attention to, and getting paid for it uh, first? Oh, you know, I I worked for a gentleman that had a vineyard, and so I was growing grapes for him. So I was making wine with my neighbors at the yeah. time. And then um, my first winemaking job, I was planting a vineyard for this gentleman, and he hired a guy that was, um, he hired in July, so pretty close to harvest. Yeah. And every time I'd go there to check on the vineyard development, he'd say, man, I don't know if I can make it through harvest. Our chemistry is not good. And... He kind of complained about him every time I went over there. And so I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I don't know. One day I went there, he said, I fired him. Uh And I'm going, now what are you going to do? And he he talked me into doing it. He said, you can do it. I've tasted your wine, you know. And so he talked me into doing it. And so I was kind of thrown into the fire. And um, I had a lot of friends that were winemakers. So I just, you know, spent a lot of time on the phone. And before I did anything, I'd tell them, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And they'd tell me, hey, you're stupid. Or, yeah, that'll work. (laughs) You know, whatever it was. But I kind of learned just by hanging out with people smarter than me. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, that's that's the best way, quite frankly. Let's drink to that. That's why I'm here, Bruce, for a drink. Here we go. Mm. Well, you know, Anderson Valley uh, played a, a pivotal role, uh, a key part in, in your journey as a winemaker and Duck Horn. Tell me about uh, those years uh, and, and that journey with Duck Horn. Well, Anderson Valley is a different place than it was back then. I mean, in in those years, it was Tony Hush, John Scharfenberger was there. I mean, there's a few pioneers. When I first moved to Anderson Valley in the mid-'80s, Rotor was just starting Rotor U.S., and so... There was a lot of exciting things going on and a lot of information. Before then, guys were kind of cowboy farmers, and Rotor was the first one that really took viticulture seriously and had been at it, you know, for a hundred plus years. So they had they had some history and they were serious about it. Yeah. And so um, 
there was things going on there that um you know became more technological if you will winemaking wise but i was lucky enough to be um managing this one ranch and um duck the guy i wanted to sell it duckhorn came around david duckhorn was on his way to the coast one day they wanted to start a pinot project and i was there and so they you know asked me to be the general manager and winemaker and um it was um it was a lot of fun it was uh Interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> he says with a grin. And listen, when I think Duckhorn, I think Pinot. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, so it's got to be a joyous thing when, as a winemaker, you have you end up having some of your greatest hits, uh, and they become popular. Uh, you go to restaurants, you see your wine on a uh, on a on a wine list, uh, or you overhear people ordering it. That's got to feel good, right? Yeah, it does. And, you know, the thing about the, the, when we started GoldenEye, it was going to be a, a you know, 3,000-case brand that turned into 6,000-case brand that turned into what it is today. And so, you know, it went from being one wine to being vineyard designates. And the cool thing about it was our mantra was always let production direct marketing, not the other way around. Sure. And so, I mean, my my instructions were you make the best wine you can. We don't care if it's one case or 1,000 cases, but don't put a subpar product in the market and and we really believed that and we tried hard to do that and i think we accomplished it yeah yes you did um what brought you back to napa bruce you left anderson valley uh what was the allure to come back to napa well i was doing stuff you know duckhorn was in uh, santa lena and so i was always going back and forth and um um the vineyard management company that did the development for GoldenEye was also farming all the duckhorn properties down there. And so I got to know those guys. And Jess Madrigal approached me about making some wine for him. I left uh, GoldenEye in 2003. And so I leased a, a place in uh, Mendocino County from some friends in it's kind of small custom crush place. So I was making wines for different people. And um, eventually um, moved to St. Helena and was going back and forth. And I had some projects in Sonoma County and Mendocino County in here. So um, You got your miles in, huh? Yeah, I did. I, uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of time in my car. And back then, car phones weren't that, you know, that sure. like they are now. I mean, there wasn't Bluetooth. It was like you were yelling into this thing on your dashboard. So, you know, it's a lot easier working in your car now. But, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the car and going from place to place. And, uh you know, eventually settled in. I lived in St. Helena for eight years or so and then bought a house in Calistoga. So I'm put. Yeah, you'll put three kids later, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so here we are, Matera, Ugnall, here in Napa. Tell me about the name firstly. What's behind the name Matera? Uh, it was a name that we came up to, to kind of uh, convey the idea of Mother Earth and tying the earth to the soil and grapes, you know, uh, the soil is so important when growing grapes, and uh, so it was you know it's a made up name, but it's you know made to convey the link between the earth and the soil. Got me, Bruce. Yeah. Got me, uh, and it's easy to say too. Yeah. Matera, I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so you begin this new journey uh, with a guy you met in a tasting room. Right. Uh, tell me about uh, the relationship with the family. It's the Kunat family. Is that correct? Right. So I met Brian uh, in summer of 2007, and he came to where I was working and came to taste wine. And uh, like everybody, he was interested in, 
you know, what pieces of property sell for. And, you know, I mean, people, when they come from the Midwest and come to California, they can't believe what's, yeah. you know, something's, well, I don't know if it's what it's worth, but what it costs, yeah, sure. <laughs> what it costs. Yeah. And uh, about, I don't know, three or four weeks later, he called and he had seen the property that we're sitting on today that was for sale and uh, asked the management company to do dil- due diligence on it. Yeah. Um, I think closed escrow the end of August of that year. And um, there was, you know, it's a 50-acre parcel. There was... I, have, I don't remember how many tons of grapes that first year, but none of it was sold. And so we started yeah. scrambling, looking for buyers for that. He asked me to make a little wine for him, and uh, Mike Trujillo took some wine to Sequoia Grove and made that. And so, um, you know, the first wines turned out pretty good. And then in 2008, because the vineyard was virused, it had the leaf roll, we started planting the back half. So we tore out the—it was all Merlot. We tore out the back 25 acres and— Planted Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Chardonnay, Petit Verdot, Malbec, and three blocks of Merlot, yeah. and then d- developed the rest of it after we started getting fruit off of that. And why do they all thrive here? What is it about the soil? What is it about the climate? And where we are in Napa? Well, this ranch is on an alluvial fan, so one of our borders is the Napa River. So this is ancient floodplain. So I mean, pretty, you know, it's alluvial soil, pretty, pretty fertile, but not too fertile. Yeah. Um, the reason that the varieties that we've planted here is because of the coolness of it. So, I mean, typical, a typical morning here during the summer is the fog comes up the Napa River. It'll be um, cool here and uh, foggy cloud cover till 11.30 noon. It'll clear up. It'll get warm for the middle part of the day, and then the fog comes back in. So we don't have really extreme hot weather here. I mean, we will get warm here, but it always cools off at night, you, you know, most most of the year. And so the grapes here, um, because of that, retain acidity and um, have nice acid balance. And, and you can let them hang long enough that you get really nice, ripe fruit flavors as well. Uh, brand new tasting room. Uh, I mean, this property really is brand spanky new. Yeah, we have crushed here two years. Um, we did the uh, 15 was our first crush here and uh, um, you know from a winemaking standpoint it was great because we got to design the winery ourselves um, Brian kind of gave us free reign as far as design and we did the design with a classmate of his from the MBA program at Harvard Johnny DeRosa who's down in the Bay Area and uh, he was great to work with because you know, at first I was wondering because he'd never built a winery before, but that turned out to be an asset because he actually listened to you when you talk, when you talk to him. It's always good, isn't it? Yeah, he was. He didn't have you know preconceived ideas of you know oh we need this for production. He you know, and so we tried to design it so that the grapes uh, flowed through the winery in an orderly fashion, and uh, then to the tasting room. So um, as we look out here, uh, our fifty acres we're on. Uh, 40 acres of grapes. Uh, tell us what we're seeing beyond us here. So right behind us is um, Chardonnay and Merlot. These vines are three years old now. We picked a crop off them last year, our first crop, and um, you know they will have pretty much have a full crop this year. Um, w- once again, we have different selections of Chardonnay. So we have six, uh, six blocks of Chardonnay now, and they're uh, different Dijon clones and. Um, same with, um, I think now we're up to eight blocks of Merlot, different different selections of Merlot. And so, you know, it's nice because the winery's right here. We pick at night. We have fruit sitting there in the morning, yeah. and we keep every block separate. Oh. And so when we bring stuff into the winery, um, 
all the blocks are kept separate. They're fermented separately. They're barreled down separately. And then when we go to blend, when, you know, like right now we're in the process of tasting the 16s. We taste every barrel. We score every barrel. We pull out the reserve tier. You know, we start putting the base wines for the other wines together and then cellar them like that. And then at the end when we pull them, um, you know, we have the base wine set. And then we start tweaking sure. those with, you know, other tools we have in the cellar. we got a wet season. How that, how... Is that going to affect your grapes this year? Well, you know, it's interesting because in drought years, um, you have nutrient deficiencies because the vines aren't able to take up the nutrients they need. And the soil microbes are not as active, you know, and that's things that break down and make nitrogen and and make um, nutrients, micronutrients available. So this year we're going into the season with a full you know soil profile which is great the thing that it does though is we'll have more available nitrogen and so we're going to have to be careful that uh to control vegetative growth because it could be a year where we have a lot of vegetative growth and you want balance between the fruit and and uh leaf area and and so you know if we don't set a crop that holds back the vegetation we're going to be in the vineyard doing a lot of handwork sure <laughs> he says with a big grin um let's move on to uh our next wine here we're going we're going red uh here we go what are you pouring there so this is uh, our right bank it's uh, a merlot it's predominantly merlot most years it uh, this one happens to be 100 percent merlot um sometimes it has a little cab or you know petite verdot malbec yeah. we play with everything sure. The joy of being the winemaker, you get to play, right? Yeah. Uh, Bruce, uh, salute my friend. Here we go. Cheers. Mm. That's yummy. And we'll, and we'll just get better, right? Yeah. So, you know, the thing that's interesting about Merlot, it had that little downturn, you know, after. <laughs> Sideways. Yeah. But um, I love Merlot. I've always loved Merlot. Me too. And I love that film. And when uh, they bashed Merlot, uh, I was kind of I was kind of bummed because I had so much of it, which um, here's the good news. Actually, I was able to get some Merlot that I really liked for a slightly less price, but it's bounced back. Yeah, it has. And, you know, I did a taste in Santa Barbara maybe a couple of months ago. And people are, you know, it's funny because that was the whole sideways thing and people are asking for merlot again and for me uh, personally i'd rather drink merlot than cabernet and i maybe shouldn't say that because i'm in napa but i find it more interesting and um, i like the flavor profile better and there's a time in uh, cabernet's fermentation where there's like two days i don't like the way it smells sure (laughs) you know i mean Merlot is always like bright cherry kind of plum skin you know really really nice and you can do some really nice things with it and retains acidity and it's a great wine uh, I'm a fan. I'm not just saying that because I'm sitting here with you, but I am. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, you know, when you look at the year-long cycle, the 12-month cycle of uh, working in a vineyard, um, well, what's the high point for you uh, of all the things that you do that are part of your job? Uh, what do you love most? What do you enjoy most? I like this time of year because, you know, the vines have been dormant. You know, we're, you know they're just kind of hanging around. But when you see bud break and you start seeing um, – flower clusters you know what are going to become grapes that's pretty exciting i like um verasian when things start softening up you start seeing color in the vineyard and then of course harvest is what you live for oh yeah those early mornings (laughs) yeah you know uh, 
You get used to it. It's not. Yeah. It's not that big a deal. It's like. Oh, no, it's no, like no, I'm a, saying those <laughs> only ones affectionately because I've, I've, I come up here every year. Uh, various friends I help at crush time, and I love it. It's yeah. an, it's an exciting time. It's almost like a religious experience. Yeah, it's very exhilarating. Yeah. You know, to get up in the morning and. You know, and the other thing is, it like you know, I was talking about cooking before. You have different ingredients every year, so yeah. that's the challenge of winemaking. If you know, if it was the same, it'd be like making Coca Cola. But sure. you know, some years the Chardonnay is not as ripe as you want it, but you have yeah. to pick it. You know, it's different every year, and so that's your job as a winemaker is to say, "Hey, look, this is what I got this year. This is how I need to treat it to get to this end goal." Sure. Then what mo- Mother Nature? What, what Mother Nature gives you? Uh, you have to uh, you have to tweak and uh, play with what she delivers and offers. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is, as you know, more and more winemakers. I mean, they can all take the same fruit from the same vineyard, and it all turns out different. Yeah. You yeah, know, which is true. Cool. Absolutely, cool. I mean, well, it's your mark in the glass, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think you know it's fun. As I always tell people, it's like making tomato sauce. You know, you know, in a in a green year where the tomatoes aren't ripe, you might add a little sugar. Sure. You know, in a yeah. year where you have perfect fruit, you might not do anything. Yeah. You know? and so Bruce, it's a Sunday night. Your house, this wine on the table. What are we going to eat with it? Oh, uh, I would. You know, if I was uh, barbecuing, I would like to have a ribeye with some. Uh, Blue cheese mashed potatoes and maybe some caramelized onions on top of that. Or, you know, mushrooms, morels or something. Sign me up. (laughs) I know you like to travel. Uh, On your travel, I know you discover wonderful wines. Uh, Where have you traveled recently? And what's impressed you about winemaking in regions afar? Um, Well, I went to Portugal about a month ago. And uh, the thing that always amazes me is how... um, I guess you would say varietal-centric we are. I mean, there's thousands of varieties of grapes that we never taste in, yeah. in the United States, you know, unless you're a real geeky person. And some of them you can't get here. So, yeah. you know, so there's that. So, I, you know, I'm always amazed at how cheap wine is everywhere else. and how Wait, many, ain't, the, ain't, wait, 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 ain't that true? Yeah, and, and how great some varieties are that you never see here or that yeah. have got thrown into red blends. I mean, Carignan's a p- perfect example in California. Yeah. I think it's a phenomenal wine. And you go to France and taste it as a varietal. It's, it's unbelievable. Sure. Here it's been a blender, you know. People yeah. just put it into jug wine. Yeah. And there's so many, so many different varieties in so many ways of making wine. And and you go, you know, we were up in the Duro. These guys were farming with horses on these steep hillsides, you know. And, and you just think to yourself, man, they got to really want to make wine to, <laughs> to, to work that hard. Well, instant respect, right, yeah. when, when you see that. Oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, we have, you know, we're farming on flat ground here. It's pretty, pretty, it's fairly easy. I wonder, oh, he's smiling, Bruce. Um, and I, you know, I have to say, you know, just anywhere you go, be it Spain, Italy, France, uh, I mean, just to go on a journey and taste wine along the way is always tremendous fun, right? Yeah, and, you know, the history for me, I, I, I'm a history buff. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting is when I used to go to Europe, like I spent a lot of time in Burgundy, and, when, you know, when I used to go years back, um, you'd ask people why they did stuff, and they didn't really know. They mm-hmm. would just say, hey, that's how my father did it. That's right. how my grandfather did and it. That's what you do. You follow suit. You yeah. follow the same path. But what started happening, I'm going to say 15 years ago, is everybody started traveling the world. So now there's people that have done a harvest in Bordeaux and California and Australia and New Zealand. And so they see different ways of doing things and they bring them back to where they are and try them. So the whole winemaking world has become global, if you will. And, um, you know, I have... um, 
Uh, you know, I have a friend that used to do three harvests a year. He'd do one in Bordeaux, one in Australia, one in California. And he did that for years while he was single. And he had an incredible amount of knowledge of different techniques and yeah. things that, you know, we had never seen before. Um, so here we are. We are at Matera uh, up here, Oak Knoll, Napa, uh, the tasting room. Uh, you can come enjoy by appointment, of course, right? Right. Uh, and you have a, a wine club here. Can people become members? Yeah, we do have a wine club. There's three levels, and um, um, you know you get shipments throughout the year. And I, I think, and I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think now it's gone to two shipments a year just yeah. because of weather concerns. Because they don't want to ship during warm weather, and you know, some places when you ship to Texas, you better ship before April. <laughs> <laughs> you Hello. don't know what you're gonna get. <laughs> um, is it a good time to be a winemaker in Napa Valley? Uh, yeah, always. Always, you know, I mean, it's a great lifestyle. It's um, you meet a lot of interesting people, and the thing about uh, about um, Napa Valley is you see people from all over the world come here, yeah. and so it's a lot easier marketing your wines from here because you have people coming from all over the United States and all over the world. So you get a lot of exposure yeah. by staying put, sure. you know, where yes. you don't have to go out on the road like if you're a Michigan winery and trying to peddle your, you yeah. know, Riesling from, you know, the peninsula. So. Sure. Uh, well, listen, Bruce, thank you for your gifts and your passion. Uh, all here in the glass. Folks, if you want to come, come enjoy uh, the great wines here at Matera. We had a Viognier today uh, and a Malo known as the Right Bank 2012. Uh, we're going to share more of Bruce's story, plus the wine notes on both those wines, at cbssf.com and click on Foodie Chap. Bruce, salute, my friend. Thank you. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.